as we are halfway through our verse-by-verse study of the book of John, about to get into the last half of the book, which is, of course, just one week, the Passion Week of Christ Jesus. So it's the book of John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. If you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, praise your name. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. John 12, 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nod and anointed his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had risen from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. So the question becomes, the question that's on the floor right now is, Do you believe in Jesus? It may sound like a strange question to pose in church, but the question, do you believe in Jesus, is asking far more than do you believe that Jesus Christ existed? The true meaning of the question is, do you believe Jesus Christ is exactly what the Bible says that he is? Are you one who places all of your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you believe that Jesus is God in human form? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1 Do you believe that the Word became flesh? and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1, 14. 
Do you believe that this same Jesus died on the cross for the penalty of our sins? For I delivered to you as first of importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15 and 3. Do you believe that he who knew no sin became sin for us? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Do you believe that because of your sin that you are eternally separated from God? Do you understand that because of that, there is an ultimate payday for those who cannot satisfy that sin debt? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans six twenty three. Do you believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he came as God incarnate? And do you believe that his sacrifice is the adequate payment for your sins? Do you believe he is the propitiation of your sins? Not for yours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2 and 2. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me or no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14 and 6. If you believe these things then blessed are you if you practice them. Biblical faith is where you trust and rely on the facts stated in the Bible. So what is faith? Well, a good example of faith is the pew that you're sitting in. I don't know how many of you have a background in carpentry, but you came into this sanctuary you understand in a way that a pew should be able to support your weight. You have to take for a moment and make an assessment whether this pew was assembled correctly. And you take your chance and you sit down upon it. But see, that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is actually relying on that pew to hold you up just as you rely on Christ Jesus to hold you up in all situations. So are we trusting Jesus as our Lord and Savior? Are we relying on his death and resurrection as a full payment of our sin debt? Are we depending upon his resurrection as a down payment and a guarantee that we too one day will rise to eternal life? If we trust the chair... How much more can we trust Christ? Let us pray. Most gracious and loving God, we give you glory and praise for the things that you have done and all the promises that you have kept and for the provisions that you have provided. You are a great God and greatly to be praised. You woke us up yet again this morning you have given us the privilege to see a brand new day. For this is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
Forgive us, O Lord, for our lack of hospitality. Forgive us, O Lord, for our lack of worship. Forgive us, O Lord, for our lack of trust. Show us, through your word today, the example and the standard that has been set before us. And help us rise, O Lord, to the occasion. Let us not forget who you are. Let us forget our past and let us press forward toward the goal of the high prize and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. As we find ourselves here in the 12th chapter of John, John is one of, it's a trans, John 12 is a transitional chapter. Uh, it doesn't contain many miraculous signs and uh, doesn't really sustain the discourse that we've seen in chapters 8, 9, and 10. It starts off with a first uh, two narrative sections, uh, 1 through 11 that we're dealing with today and then 12 through 19. And both of these narrative sections, they do no more than honor Jesus and give him praise for what he has done. Uh, it's trying to get us to grasp the significance of who Jesus is. And then when we come to the third section, we see the arrival of Gentiles who come to serve Jesus as a signal that this is his last hour, that his hour has come. The same hour that he was speaking of when he spoke to his mother back in John 2, and he's at the wedding, and she wants him to do something, and he says, woman, my hour has not come. But now we see one act in this particular passage, the anointing of Jesus at Bethany. And you got to compare that with the other three that are in the synoptics, the other Gospels. We see what's in Matthew 26 and 6 through 13, and then Mark 14, 3 through 9, and then Luke 7, 36 through 38. Matthew and Mark tell about this anointing at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now, their incident is undated, but it's placed toward the end of Jesus' public ministry. The woman herself is unnamed as she anoints Jesus' head and ointment with nard taken from an alabaster jar. And we see that even then, many of the disciples were indignant, thinking that it was an over-the-top worship of Jesus. Jesus defends the woman and he relates the anointing to his death and burial that will come later. And he reminds them that the poor will always be with you. But yet when we look at Luke, the dinner is at the home of an unnamed Pharisee. And the unnamed woman is a woman of immoral character. And their biggest thing is they're wondering if Jesus is really a prophet. Does he know what kind of woman is touching him? She comes overwhelmed with remorse, the remorse of her sin. She weeps so much that her tears provide enough water to wash the feet of Jesus. And then she wipes her tears away in Jesus' feet with her hair and anoints them with perfume. 
There are parallels in all of these, but when you look at John, you have to single out probably Matthew and Mark as being the closest and really probably talking about the same event. Both of them mention the anointing at Bethany. Uh, they don't specify the home except for Matthew speaks that this is Simon the leper's home. John doesn't tell you who the home belonged to. They both speak of the ointment that's made with pure nod. They both speak of the reaction of the disciples. Matthew specifies a reaction to a larger group of disciples, but John speaks of one particular disciple, Judas. Both mention the sum of 300 denarii, the value of the perfume. What is important here is that we learn three important things about how belief is expressed. Mary's belief, or rather Martha's belief, is expressed by her serving. Mary's belief is expressed by her worship. And the many who came to Jesus because of the fact that Lazarus had been risen from the dead, they come to Jesus and express their belief through their trust. Let's look at verse 1 here. As Martha plans a dinner for Jesus. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now we recognize that six days before the Passover, we have to back it back up and we, she had to start at least on that Friday at the end when the Passover would start and then end on that particular Saturday night. The dinner probably happened in the evening after the Sabbath was over on sundown on Saturday. Bethany was maybe two miles, two and a half miles from Jerusalem. It was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the place that Jesus came to raise him from the dead. We see that the anointing of Jesus points to his death, burial, and resurrection later on. But it also points to a detail that John doesn't mention right away. It shows that it happens at the same time as the, at the, as the Passover happens. And later on, this same Jesus will replace the sacrificial lamb at the Passover because he is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. The second verse says this, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. The Greek literally says they made him supper. It's been suggested that Simon the leper was the father of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and that was his home. Uh, the actions of Martha kind of ties in with how you see Martha throughout the Bible. You know, what happens in the first instance when, not the first instance, but our first instance in seeing Mary and Martha together, Jesus comes to their home. And Martha is busy with what? Much serving. And Martha complains as Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Both 
earnest in their desire to honor Jesus. One wants to serve, one wants to sit at his feet and just drink in knowledge. They both express different, different spiritual gifts. I'm here to tell you, I think Martha possessed the spiritual gift of hospitality. Hospitality can be defined as the quality of the disposition of knowing how to treat guests and strangers warmly and affectionately and being generous. In the New Testament, the word in Greek hospitality literally means love of the stranger. Hospitality is a virtue that is both commanded and commended throughout all of Scripture. The Old Testament is specifically uh, commanded when it says in what, Leviticus 19:33-34, "When an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistrust him. The alien is living with you must be treated like one of your native-born. Love him." As yourself, for you were once aliens in Egypt. Throughout the public ministry of Jesus, Jesus and his disciples depended entirely on the hospitality of others as they went from town to town to minister. In fact, travelers in all of the ancient times depended heavily on the hospitality of strangers as they traveled. Uh, they could not check in to Holiday Inn. They would go and live with others who rightly wanted to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And these strangers provided provisions for them, opening up their homes for them to stay as well, opening up their homes for church services. Hospitality was indeed regarded as a virtue. It is the writer of Hebrews that reminds us Never forget to entertain strangers properly, for by so some of you have entertained angels without knowing it. Hebrews 13 and 2. Indeed, even the book of Genesis shows us that Abraham's humble and generous display of hospitality to three strangers that he did not know that turned out to be two angels of rather three angels from the Lord. So we see this trait has been built into Martha. She was always busy with much serving. You and I as Christians, you and I as the very workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus, were created for what? To do good works. As followers of Christ, we are to emulate his love and his compassion. We do that when we show hospitality not only to fellow Christians, but even more to strangers who are less fortunate. Jesus said in Luke 14 and 13, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. The Samaritan teaches us who a true neighbor is. It's not always the one from your same tribe, but your neighbor is global. It's the one that does the will of God. It's the one that doesn't walk past you. Remember, you've got a priest and you've got a Levite that both walk past them because they're concerned that they're going to be late for ministry. 
when ministry is laying right in front of them. But then a good Samaritan, a Gentile, had compassion upon him and didn't cross over to the other side. Now we see Mary and her belief comes out as being a worshiper. Look at verse 3 here. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made with pure nod and anointed his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with a fragrance of perfume. When you think about this, this is the quantity here that she is offered is considerable. A full 16 ounces of a very expensive perfume. Nard is an oil extracted from the root and the spite of the nard plant that's grown in India, and it had to be important. So we see here, as they were leaning and reclining, which was their tradition, they would be extended in a way that you could get to most parts of their body as they would lean on their elbows to eat. We see here that Mary anoints the feet of Jesus, And she does that because she wants to show her humility, her devotion to Jesus. Then she wipes his feet with her hair, which is incredibly remarkable because a Jewish woman would never take down her hair in public. So what is shown here, Pastor? You see an expression of intense personal devotion to Jesus. The house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume to just show the extravagance of her love toward Jesus. And it brings a reaction. Look at verses 4 through 5. But Jesus, uh, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why is this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas is the one that speaks out here. We don't know what's on the mind of the other disciples who was there. We recognize that his offense is superficial at best. He mentions the sum of 300 denarii, the value of the perfume. And it is significant. If you remember that we recognize that one denarii is one day's labor. So if this perfume was worth 300 denarii, she's given almost a year's salary in this one act of devotion, in this one act to show that she's not willing to hold anything back for the one that she loves the most. Now, Either Mary, Martha, or Simon the leper were a lot more wealthier than we can imagine, or this could have been a family heirloom that had been passed down for years. But either way, she holds nothing back in her devotion to Jesus Christ. Now, Judas, Judas was only thinking about his personal greed. He was only thinking about material things. He was like uh, the hired hand in 
John 10, 13, that he doesn't care anything about the sheep. John gives you a little insight here. He tells you that he was the treasurer. He was the keeper of the money bag. Maybe in your translation, if you're using King James, it says he used to carry the bed. And basically when it says he used to carry the bag, it means he used to steal or he used to pilfer from the bag. This is the only place in the New Testament where Judas is called a thief. And the only indication that he will ultimately betray Jesus before Jesus has said it himself, which he doesn't even mention the name, does he? The charges almost unbelievable but when you think about it if somebody would betray the king of kings and the lord of lords for 30 pieces of silver what would they do for a year's worth of wages look at verses 7 through 8 Jesus rebukes Judas and two things here are set in action and parenthetically Uh, John tells you, and I think that's why he tells you that Judas is going to betray Jesus because it was this one act of rebuke that kind of sets that in motion. Look what it says. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Mary meant this to be exactly what it was, guys, a costly act of humility and devotion. And just like Caiaphas last week in John eleven forty nine 49 through 52, when he made a prophecy that he really didn't understand, her action here signals more than she knew. In the culture of her day, it was thought important inappropriate to spend lavish sums at a funeral, including the cost of the perfumes that were designated to stifle the smell of decay. But she wasn't trying to stifle anything. Mary's spiritual gift was true worship. You know, the Apostle Paul describes true worship perfectly in Romans 12, 1 through 2. I therefore urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable or well-pleasing and perfect. This passage contains all the elements you're ever going to need for true worship. First, there's the motivation to worship by the mercy of God. Mary sought the mercy of God. She understood that she didn't deserve eternal love, eternal grace, the Holy Spirit, everlasting peace, eternal joy, comfort, strength, wisdom, hope, patience, kindness, honor, glory, righteousness, security, forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, intercession, and salvation. 
But all of those were given to us and given to her because of her devotion for Christ Jesus. Look at her pattern of life. Mary would sit at the feet of Jesus as he taught, drinking in his knowledge, understanding the incredible gifts and teachings that he was bringing to her life and giving praise and thanksgiving. In other words, Mary was a worshiper. And this passage also describes the manner of our worship, that we are to present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices. Presenting your body means giving God all of yourself. You don't take a Sunday off to go to a cookout. You better hope you don't end up at the ultimate cookout. Because you know that's going to happen. You won't be late for that one. This reference to our bodies here means all of our human faculties, all of our humanity, all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our thoughts, all of our attitudes, all of those are to be given over to the control and management of God. Mary was willing to give Jesus Christ the most valuable possession she owned, which she thought was a perfume. But really, you know what's the most valuable possession that she didn't own but she gave to him? It was herself. When you give Jesus Christ yourself, the most precious gift ever and the gift he has sought out from the beginning, when you're willing to turn over everything to him as a literal sacrifice on the altar, then this passage becomes even clearer because then he can do what? He can renew your mind. How does he renew our minds? He cleanses our minds of our worldly vision and replaces it with a vision that comes from God. Then we learn how to worship him with our renewed and our cleansed minds, not just with our emotions. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with worshiping God in your emotions. Emotions are wonderful things, but make sure your emotions have been transferred or translated by a mind that has been saturated by God's truth. Because otherwise, emotions can be destructive. They can be out-of-control forces. Where the mind goes, the will will follow, and so will the emotions. What does 1 Corinthians 2.16 tell us? You have the mind of Christ, not the mind of your emotions. There's only one way to renew your mind, and that is by the word of God. It is the truth and the knowledge of the word of, a word of truth and the word of God's mercies will bring us in to total truth, will allow us to hold our convictions, will allow us to naturally result in spiritual worship. It will convict our hearts. If convict, you know, conviction is always followed by affection. And this is an internal response, not an external response. 
Jesus tells us that true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. This means we worship him from our heart the way God has designed us. Worship can include praying, reading God's word with an open heart, singing, participating in communion, and serving others. But it's not limited to one act. It requires our whole buy-in, our whole investment. To worship God is to glorify and to exalt him, to show our loyalty and admiration to him at all times. So this is what Mary is trying to do here. She's lavishing him with this perfume while he's still alive. When Jesus says that the poor are all, will always be with you, he's reminding us probably of Deuteronomy 15 and 11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. The fact that the poor will always be among us is no excuse for being stingy, but a reminder that we who have been blessed are to bless others. We are blessed to be what? A blessing. But Jesus is making the contrast here is that you are going to always have an opportunity to do that. But right now, I am with you, and you need to focus upon me. Now remember, this is Jesus speaking. This is not some mere mortal, uh, someone who's arrogant, uh, someone who is all that's totally conceited. Jesus is speaking here because he wants us to recognize who he is while he's in our midst. He wants us to know him. And knowing Jesus is really the key to being able to worship Jesus with your whole heart, with your whole being. Look at Mark 14, 8 through 11. thought this was interesting. Mark 14, 8 through 11. Speaking of Mary here. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. This is Jesus speaking. And truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. Now, this is what John is telling you parenthetically here, that that rebuke was enough And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. We see here that Jesus' sharp rebuke finally prompts Judas to do what he's been called to do from the beginning. John 17 says, I haven't lost, Jesus says, I haven't lost anybody but the one that is the son of pernition to fulfill scripture. He's talking about Judas. We see here as this begins to unfold, this is the key that leads uh, to the devil's prompting of Judas to go and seek a way to make money through his betrayal. And then lastly, we see that many others believed in Jesus Christ and gave him their trust. 
Look at verse 9. When a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Remember, when we left Jesus last week, he had went away to Ephraim, which is about 30 miles away. And he did it because of he could not walk any longer uh, among the Jews because they were seeking to kill him. But now that he's come back for this dinner in his honor, we see that a large crowd of Jews have also come to see him and to see and verify what they have heard about the raising of Lazarus. But look at verses, let's look at verse 10 and 11 here. Really, verse 10 just wears me out. So the chief priest plans, made plans to kill Lazarus as well because on the account many of the Jews were going away and believing Jesus. That's 10 and 11. Last week when we left Jesus, they were seeking to kill Jesus. This time, they're seeking to kill Lazarus. So they want to kill the one that raised them from the dead. They want to kill the one who has been raised from the dead. They want to eradicate the very history of the truth. Like it never happened. I hope you saw Congress this week vote not to open up an investigation on January 6th like it never happened. You see, truth is always on trial. If you can't defeat it, you got to obliterate it. you got to make sure that no one sees it anymore. If we kill Jesus and we kill Lazarus, everybody will come back home. Because he's that firebrand. He's that focal point. Every time an unbelieving Jew looks at Lazarus, they have to think, maybe I'm making the wrong choice here. I don't know one chief priest that brought anybody back from the dead. Who should I legitimately put my trust? Okay, if he can raise Lazarus from the dead, can he not protect my life? So where should I place my trust? That's the question before all of you. Where are you going to place your trust? Are you going to trust a politician or the prince of the earth? So they plot to kill him. And, you know, we understand John is not saying that their faith is totally developed here. But they are coming because they believe, and it's an infant belief, and they're going to place their trust in Jesus. Now, there are many reasons that you can place your trust in Christ Jesus. But I just want to give you the top three. But before then, I want you to understand why we have so many trust issues when it comes to Jesus. We have trust issues when it comes to Jesus because we don't know Jesus. 
It's just flat out. When you don't trust, when you don't know somebody, it's impossible for you to trust them. Now, you can play whatever mental gymnastics you want to, but the fact is plain and sure, you don't trust Jesus because you don't know Jesus. You know of Jesus. You know of George Bush. You know of Barack Obama, but do you know them? Can you call Barack Barry? You don't know him like that. When someone says they trust Jesus, that means that they are willing to follow him when they understand him and when they don't understand him. (coughs) The main reason we trust Jesus is because Jesus has proven time and time again, unlike men, that he is worthy of our trust. Jesus never lies. Jesus never fails. Jesus fulfills all of his promises. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? Unlike man, God has the power to bring to pass everything that he purposes. Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned it, so it will be. As I have purposed it, it will stand. Our God, his plans are perfect. They're holy. They're righteous. He holds all things together, and he works all things together for those who love him according to his purpose. We can endeavor to know God. So how do I get to know God, Pastor? We get to know God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit through his word. That means we sit down daily. That means we have an intimate, ongoing relationship with him during the day. We're always speaking to him. We're praying without ceasing. We're moving toward a greater and greater understanding of who he is and how we can honor him with his, our lives. Second reason that we can learn to trust Jesus is 1 Kings eight fifty six. Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to the people of Israel just as he's promised. Not one word has failed all of the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. So if God is no respecter of person, what he's done for others, he will do for us. Then doesn't his record of promises stand on his own? He's fulfilled each and every one of them. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. His work is a work that has saved our very soul. He's the one that has snatched us like a branch from the fire. You know, some of us should have got just a little closer to the fire. We just needed that quick sear, and we would have been a lot more faithful, a lot quicker. But he loved us, and because of his grace, his faithfulness, his goodness, his mercy, that 
regardless of what we've dealt with in our lives, we have never felt the full force of any tragedy because as long as we're in Christ Jesus, he filters it. He buffers it. The third reason we can trust God, and I think it's really the number one reason, you and I don't have a sensible alternative. What you gonna do? I mean, what did, what did Peter say? You know, Jesus starts in chapter six, he's, you know, he's feeding 5,000, which is really 20,000 because they're not counting women and children. And then he gets down to the end and he tells them that no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. And then they said, this is a hard saying, and they turn away and they leave him. And Jesus turns to the disciples and said, hey, you want to go as well? And then Peter said, whoa, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Who are you going to trust if you won't trust Jesus? You have no other alternative. You have filled your minds with false options. And those false options will help kindle the fire that will be hidden your butt in hell. Just remember, when you're down there and you keep fanning, it won't go out. All those false options, just keep it rolling. There's no other choice. We have one all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-gracious, all-merciful, all-loving God who has good intentions for us. We need to pay attention. The choice is obvious. If we fail to trust in Jesus, it's only because we don't know him. And there's only one way out of this. And it's if we are willing to throw ourselves on the mercy of the court. That we're willing to come to a holy and righteous God and say, Lord, I didn't know. I didn't recognize. Out of my own selfishness and ignorance, I tried or I thought I was leading this life on my own. I need you to take complete control. You know, I, I get so angry when I see those bumper stickers, uh, God is my co-pilot. Oh, no, no. No, God needs to be the pilot. You get in the other seat. And until we do that, until we fling ourselves on the mercy of the court, till we plead ignorance and say, Lord, take me, retrain me, teach me your word, show me, your, show me the same love you've been showing me, the love that it has brought me to this moment. The, the love that's brought me to my knees that I recognize there is no other sensible choice but you. The moment we do that, we serve such a gracious and loving God that he's willing to erase all of our sins, past, present, and future, and to reserve a place for us in heaven. In fact, Eternal life starts the moment you give your life to Christ Jesus. 
It's the right now and not yet. Paul tells us that we are living in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, sitting beside him at the same time we're walking down here through Broad Ripple. It is a present reality, but it takes knowledge and it takes our ability to stop relying upon ourselves and rely upon the one who is the creator of the universe, the one that has done great things already. If we're going to believe in and put our trust in him, it's going to require us to dig diligently into his word. I'm just telling you, if you would take two months and just diligently dig into his word, his word will draw you closer and will make you see that this is truth and everything else you're dealing with is a lie. But every word that comes from his mouth is truth. Is either happen or it will happen on its own its way to happen. He never fails. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, break our hearts this morning. Let us recognize, Lord, this that every day is a holiday because every day is a holy day. You tell us not to make one more of one day than the other because all the days you have given. Let us recognize how gracious you are. And then, Lord, let us become people who are willing to share with you our greatest possession, our life. Let us not hold back anything from you. Let us recognize that all good and perfect gifts come down from heaven and that everything that we have, we only have it because you have given to us. So let us not fear and sharing with you, but we know that we can trust you. Make us good conduits that can be used to bless your kingdom. And Lord, build us up on every leaning side. Give us the confidence that you have control over our health, you have control over our longevity. Let us recognize how important it is that we abide in you. And if we abide in you, then you will fulfill the desires of our heart because you will change our heart to have the right desires. And that your word will never come back void. We love you, we praise you, and we need more of you. Let us come to know you even the more. It's in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.